0: Minute and this is Roy Mitchell. Hello from Hibla. It's hot here. Very hot. The bugs are out, but so are the blossoms. And it was only a few weeks ago that there was snow on the ground, and now it's definitely t-shirt and shorts weather, with a mix of sunblock and hand sanitizer. Strange times. So find something cool to drink, sit back and enjoy this sixteenth episode of Hibla Minute. My guest today is Christine McCrae, an algonquin woman whose connection and roots to this area go deep and way back, before Hibla, before Algonquin Park, before Canada. I first met Christine at a meeting where she shared her knowledge graciously to a group of non-Indigenous people who were full of questions. In this interview, she brings the same passion and care that I witnessed at that meeting. We talk about her business, wasaya Consulting, her work on nativeland.ca digital, land acknowledgements and colonialism, a lot of things. If you listen closely, you can hear the birds singing. Christine brought birdsong all the way from Whitney to Hiblaminit. We begin the show with Christine introducing herself in the Algonquin language and English. A great way to start any show.
1: And so that is the Algonquin traditional introduction, and what it translates out to is, hello, my name is Christine. I am from the Clan. I belong to the Madawascarini Algonquin people, and specifically those at the headwaters of the Madawaska, and I am an Algonquin woman. So I also am mixed settler ancestry as well, so some of the earliest settlers to this part of the world.
0: Megwish. Christine, I'm so glad to hear those two languages on one podcast. <laughs> And how are you doing pandemic-wise?
1: Doing fairly well. I'm thankful that I'm able to get out and spend time in my garden now. It was a little bit touch and go in the winter when it wasn't as alive outside. It's a lot nicer now that it's warm weather and we're all able to be outside enjoying all that spring brings to us now.
0: The garden, despite the bugs, is a wonderful place to go to.
1: They're very friendly.
0: Yes. I want to talk to you about Wasaya Consulting. Why did you call your consulting business Wasaya, and what kind of services do you offer?
1: So Wasaya is an Algonquin word that translates out into bright light, as in it is light, like as in day. So I first caught the word in a song by a band, an Indigenous band called Digging Roots, and the song is called For the Light. It's a bit of a play on words. So as Algonquin people are currently on a path of rebuilding and relearning who we are. Having a company that is solely based on Algonquin history and culture is, in my mind, a bit of a bright light on the path that we're walking right now. So Wasaya Consulting was created to enhance the awareness and understanding of Algonquin Anishinaabek history. And culture throughout our unceded territory and beyond. It actually has two parts. So the consulting company offers services like cultural awareness training, indigenous food sovereignty workshops, medicinal plant workshops, traditional crafts, research and communications, cultural resource management, and management of economic development projects. And then the second part of it is we'll say a Cultural Tours, which is an indigenous tourism company. And it's all experiential tourism that is based on history and culture of Algonquin people. Each tour, it's a, it can be a walking tour, it can be an experience around a campfire, it can be an indoor experience whenever we're allowed to do that again. But it's all customized to the unique needs, abilities, and interests of clients. And it's really, really amazing to interact with people in such a casual atmosphere when we're walking through the woods and we're talking and they feel comfortable to ask questions about Algonquin history or maybe sometimes even overall Indigenous history of Canada, if that's a question that I can answer. But it's just a really comfortable way for people to learn.
0: Sounds amazing. How has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted Wasaya Consulting?
1: It's... uh... (laughs) very quiet these days so um, as you can imagine a lot of the work that I do is very dependent on face-to-face interactions and everything that I had booked for the summer is currently on hold so a lot of the work that I do is also with some of the children's camps in Algonquin Park and with children's camps not running this year unfortunately that's not an option for us but we along with Camp Pathfinder in Algonquin Park, we had created the Algonquin Campership Fund that was specifically uh, dedicated to having Algonquin boys visit Camp Pathfinder for a couple weeks or even a month out of the summer free of charge. So a way for them to experience Algonquin territory and beyond in a very unique way in that summer camp setting. And I was also in talks with Camp Tana Macoon to to the same sort of program for Algonquin girls. So unfortunately, that's something that we're going to have to put on hold for about a year.
0: And I know you were working with the Bancroft Stewardship Council as well. Who spoke really highly of you?
1: Oh, it's very nice to hear. I have been a member of the Bancroft Stewardship Council for, I guess it's over three years now. It's an incredible group of very, very dedicated volunteers There's just a wonderful synergy with that group. And there are some amazing projects that happen as a result of us all gathering together. Both myself and Taylor Grossleg, who's also on the Stewardship Council, and she uh, she focuses on the Youth Engagement and Youth Stewardship Council. Uh, We had planned an environmental summit that was to happen in Algonquin Park at the beginning of April and it would have been about 2 weeks after everything dropped due to covid but we were on track to hold to hold a summit that would have had about 15 experts in the field of environmental studies ranging from indigenous knowledge keepers to folks who know about the value of community engagement when it comes to some environmental work to GIS workshops to people talking about the importance of volunteerism and contributing to our local environment. So unfortunately, we've had to cancel that for now, but we will be holding it in the future.
0: And why is it important for everyone to keep learning about Indigenous issues?
1: So I think it's something people have not really been allowed to learn about for for quite a long time. Being someone who... Always had an interest in history from the time that I was very young in elementary school and actually studied history as part of my undergraduate degree. I did not learn about Indigenous history in schools. The most I really touched on it in my university education was through a few poems by Pauline Johnson. That was about 10 years ago that I had graduated, and it just wasn't something that was really talked about. So I, I don't know exactly what had started this whole conversation, this large conversation that is happening throughout the whole entire world, but I might point it to, I don't know more, around the 2011-2012 time period. That allowed Indigenous people to feel comfortable to to speak out, to tell stories, to talk about the hard history that we have Experienced for over 400 years. I think now that we're on such a path of learning what true history is and what has actually happened in this country, a lot of people view Canada as being such a polite and loving country, which we are, but we also have darker parts of history. And I think it's important to acknowledge and understand and learn from those darker parts of history as well as living up to our reputation as these very polite, constantly saying, sorry, donut-loving, coffee, Tim Hortons-loving people.
0: (laughs) Right on. And you're writing a book. Can you tell us about your book?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So I have been researching this book for, I don't know, somewhere between 15 to 18 years. I grew up not knowing really anything about Algonquin history in this area and who my family was. And it is a, a direct impact of... Of colonization on my family, even in this small little area in Whitney. My family was forced to leave the Algonquin Park area and ended up settling in Whitney. We've been a part of the community ever since, along with a number of other Algonquin families who are still here as well. Growing up without knowing that history, it, it really struck me that I, I don't want our next generations to not know who they are. It takes a long time to learn at least where your people come from and to be able to write that written record, to share it with the next generations, and also just to share it with anyone who's willing to read. It will help people to know that we have always been here, that we are here, and that we will continue to be here.
0: I remember you talking about your family having to leave Algonquin Park and how you had a choice between anywhere or some not very good reservation land. And didn't your family choose to live at Whitney so they could look and see Algonquin? Like, we're going to see where we were. Wasn't that part of your story?
1: Absolutely, it is. My family lived at basically the place where Galeri Lake meets Rock Lake. So it's on the main channel of the Madawaska River. They actually had a farm there, and it's marked on some of the very old maps. Well, recently, in the past couple of years, I've figured out where that farm is. So being able to visit that place is, is just incredible. But with the creation of Algonquin Park in 1893, my family could have either left the place that they had lived for so long and gone to Pikwaknagon. But Pikwaknagon was already, it was already full, right? It was, there were many families that were already living there and there was only so much space especially given that Pekwaknagan is, you know, there's only so much land to be be had, but it's also very rocky and swampy and that sort of thing. So you would be overcrowded and you wouldn't be on the absolute best land. Now, the backstory behind that is that my family, so my grandfather, four generations back, he was the Grand High Chief of the Algonquin and Nipissing people. And his name shows up in petitions asking for land to have been set aside in what's now the panhandle of Algonquin Park that would be big enough for 400 Algonquin families. And that's a request that was denied around 1865, 1866. And that was just a year before Confederation. So it had been a fight that had been longstanding. And unfortunately, with Algonquin Park, about 30 years later, in 1893, they did have to leave what's now Algonquin Park and they did move to just the other side of the border to a little tiny log cabin that still remains in our family today and you can see the park line from where that cabin sits and somehow now in my adult life I live kind of across the the lake from that little cabin and I'm I'm one of the very uh, closest houses to that Algonquin Park border so it's interesting that no matter where I've lived and no matter what I've done in my life, I somehow end up as close to the place that my family is from as I can possibly be.
0: That's something very beautiful. Absolutely. To me, it sounds like resistance. (laughs) You've recently started a new job as executive director of Native Land Digital. What is Native Land all about? And what do you do there as its executive director?
1: So I started with uh, Native Land, I guess it would have been toward the end of February. And I had actually used Native Land as a resource a number of times in a few different professions that I've held, which is pretty amazing to now be on this side of it, able to understand all that goes on at Native Land. So Native Land is an online tool that allows you to view a map and understand whose territory it is that you are on. It's available on both website form and also in a digital app that you can download. It lists some additional resources about each respective territory or nation, talks about the different treaties that cover different territories. Pretty soon, we're actually going to start having Indigenous language translations available of our homepage based on the nation that you are looking at. So we're, we're striving to have as many Indigenous languages as we possibly can featured on our website. And as executive director, I mean, I take care of the the daily stuff. We get a lot of emails of people inquiring about uh, different locations, maybe people asking for assistance with uh, land acknowledgements. There might be some folks who are interested in the educator's guide that we have and just wanting a little bit more assistance in, in developing a program maybe to have in school. And as well, we have a lot of suggestions of additional resources that people send in from their own territories. So it's a very interactive and community knowledge-based website. And it's just incredible, the community that exists around Native land.
0: Nativeland.ca is an amazing resource for people wanting to understand and read about land acknowledgements. Why are they important and what makes a land acknowledgement work?
1: So I think um, just to touch on when land acknowledgements are not, when they're not as impactful as they can be. For anyone who's not familiar with land acknowledgements, it is a statement, it can be long, it can be short, that's usually said at the beginning of an event or maybe the beginning of a day over announcements at a school. But it acknowledges the territory that we are on, that um, the territory for for here at least would be the unceded territory of the Algonquin people. So it does acknowledge that there is a much, much, much older history, anywhere between at least 10,000 to 12,000 years of people being from this land. So when it's not effective, it's when it becomes a token gesture. It's something that is said at the beginning, no one really pays attention to and no one ever gives it a second thought. Within my own work with Wasea Consulting, but also in work with Native Land and why I appreciate Native Land so much, it encourages the user to go beyond just that token land acknowledgement, but also have some sort of action that is associated with that acknowledgement. So it encourages people to dig deeper, to learn more about the people who are on this land, to engage with those people, maybe to attend events if there's powwows or gatherings of some sort, and also just to learn as much as possible and to kind of take it into their own hands and and realize that the history here goes much deeper.
0: For many settlers, colonialism is something that happened. We see it as history. What would you say to people who think colonialism is about history and not manifesting itself in contemporary times?
1: So, I mean, even looking at myself and my own story, knowing that my family, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, my family were some of the first settlers here. To the best of my knowledge, they did not come here with any ill intention, but rather came here to allow their own families to thrive and survive. Part of my family is Irish. And unfortunately, the Irish people had um, suffered great hardships. And that's why they moved here. Certainly, I don't want to allow people to think that there should be a huge guilt associated with their families coming here and settling in this place that we're all so lucky to call home. Rather to understand the impacts that it's had on Indigenous people so certain government policies, ways of annihilating an entire culture, teaching people to forget their language in a very forcible, disgusting way, even changing people's appearances, that, that whole concept of residential schools and cutting uh, children's hair, taking their language, teaching them that basically one way, the colonial way is is much superior. Than the way that they were raised to to live in harmony, harmony and and respect with with all living things, and to have a, an appreciation and a relationship as stewards or as caretakers of the land of the animals to instead teach them that that way was wrong, that has completely affected people beyond any extent than than we can capture in in this short conversation. Within my own family, I mean, we lost we lost our own family history. My grandmother, she wouldn't talk about it. I was too young to have a conversation with her about it before she had passed. Her family was taught to feel so much shame about being Algonquin people and pass that on to her. And as a result, my, my dad did not grow up knowing any of our traditional teachings about this beautiful way of life and about the concept of living the Minobemazu and like the, the good life and living and working from your heart. My great uncle, he would hide some of the ceremonies that, that he knew. He was able to carry those ceremonies with him. But if you think about who, who Indigenous people are at the most fundamental level of our, our being, It's our ceremonies, it's our songs, it's our language, it's our culture. And we've tried so very hard to hold on to those bits of that we know who we are and imagine what it would be like to have to hide those things. And now here I am, like I am still carrying on and trying to relearn who we are, to relearn the language, to relearn what those, those medicines, those plants, to redevelop the relationship with the natural world. It's emotional work. It's work that you do not turn off. It is a way of life. Colonialism has that impact, making us, instead of inherently being who we are, we have to learn who we are. So that's kind of present day, but then going into the future... We will be teaching our children and our children's children about what those impacts of colonization have been on us as a people and also those things that we have had to relearn. But I think overall the beauty of it is that we are, we are relearning those things and we are seeking out those knowledge keepers. There are so many young Indigenous people who have picked up their bundles, who have done that work, who are learning that language, who are learning about those plants, And we're sharing that with each other so that we can bring that knowledge back. It's a really, really beautiful thing to see every day.
0: I remember the story about Martin Luther King Jr. and meeting Nicole Nichols, the actress who played Uhura on the original Star Trek. It came at an important time in her career. She was thinking of leaving the show, but King told her to stay because it was a sign to him and other Black people that they were part of the future. What are some of the things you imagine in the future, and how is the work you're doing playing a part in creating a future for Indigenous people?
1: So my grandfather, a few generations ago, the one that I had mentioned that tried really hard to have land set aside for us, so his name is is Ponchi Meganish. As I mentioned, he was the chief. But looking back, he worked so hard to set that land aside for those 400 Algonquin families so that descendants could have a place and could still be in the place that we are from so knowing that they did that work so long ago and were so resilient through all of the hardships that they had faced just so that we could survive and so that I could be here so that I could be here having this conversation and living in this place and sharing this knowledge that's what I hope that I can do that's what I hope that this work does that these words will help our descendants our next generations, the next seven generations to know who we are and that we have done all that we can for them to make sure that they know who they are and that they know their history.
0: And thank you. Chelsea Vowell inspired me to ask that last question about the future because I read her quote on nativeland.ca. And Chelsea is a public intellectual writer and educator whose work intersects language, gender, Métis self-determination and resurgence. She's also a co-host with Molly Swan of the Indigenous Feminist Sci-Fi Podcast, Métis in Space. Have you heard it?
1: I haven't heard the podcast, but Chelsea Vowell has an incredible blog, and she's also written an excellent resource called Indigenous Rights. I was lucky enough to, to meet her and to hear her speak about that book, and she actually wrote that book as she was pregnant and as she was a new mother. So the fact that she wrote such an incredible resource while being a mother, I mean, she, she is a powerhouse. She is, she's an incredible intellectual.
0: She's a, a wonderful resource and, and people can find her on, on nativeland.ca. Absolutely. And I want to thank you for nativeland.ca for helping me. It was through your, that website that I got the sound advice to call a Native organization after hours to listen to the message and get the pronunciation right. One thing I get a little nervous about is pronouncing words wrong. What are the most common words you hear people mangle when they are trying to get their tongues around indigenous words?
1: I think as with any um, learning any new language, pronunciation is something that's always very intimidating. I've actually done some work, even within the city of Ottawa, and working to rename places by giving them Indigenous words. You just got to be patient with yourself and um, and take some time and learn how to, to sound it out. So sometimes wasaya can be a very hard word for people to say, but if you look at the, uh, the double vowel spelling that I use, you can actually find the, the pronunciation pretty quickly. But one of the, the words that always sticks out in my, my mind is something like Kakabeka, like Kakabeka Falls. That's an indigenous word, but it's an indigenous word that we are used to using. So even a word like Chicago, uh, that's based on an indigenous word. Toronto, so Toronto, and still it's an indigenous word. We're just not used to thinking about it that much. So I think it's more so, instead of being apprehensive about saying a word, it is taking the time and giving yourself enough patience, enough love, and enough care to know it's okay to make the mistake and to keep learning exactly how to pronounce those words.
0: And NativeLand.ca is a great resource. I recommend it to people to use. What do you like about working at NativeLand.ca?
1: I was brought on to Native Land through a, a partnership and a grant with the Calliopeia organization. Roy, maybe that's another one that we can give a link to. They are an incredible community. And through my work with Native Land, I've been able to join in the, uh, there's a few Calliopeia online meetings. And I get to meet some of the most incredible people who are doing some of the most incredible work for their communities, for their ancestors, and for our future generations. And I love seeing that, that Native land is a resource that is used across North America and beyond and, and hearing the impact that this resource can have for so many people across so many different organizations. It's, it's really amazing to be a part of something that's having such a positive impact on the world.
0: Before we go, I want to ask for some recommendations from you, aside from people visiting nativeland.ca and checking out and checking out Waseya Consulting. Could you recommend three things, though? A book, a movie, and a singer-songwriter for people both Indigenous and non-Indigenous to check out for some insight into First Nations contemporary culture?
1: Okay, so I'm going to start with singer-songwriter, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to stick to just one for each of the three categories, but for for singer-songwriters, I absolutely love Digging Roots, who I had mentioned earlier. I would recommend their song AK-47. It's a beautiful song that got me totally hooked on on the band As for a movie I would have to recommend Indian Horse which is a book based on uh, Richard Wagamese. and many of, of my friends and people that I know through going to ceremony actually play roles in that movie so it's really nice to see some familiar faces and then with books, I always tend to recommend Lee Miracle's My Conversations with Canadians. And that book, Lee has written it from the point of view that she is sitting at her kitchen table and having a very, very honest and very open conversation with all Canadians on the history of Indigenous peoples and the impact of colonialism on all of our cultures. Lee Miracle is is someone that I look up to and consider a mentor and she holds nothing back and has the most beautiful laugh. And any of her books, whether it's a novel or whether a work of nonfiction, I would recommend. I am also a big supporter of Robin Wall Kimmerer's work, particularly Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss. She's also done a number of, of recorded talk. Just look up Robin Wall Kimmerer on YouTube and you can find so much. And then to bring it a little bit closer to home, Leanne Simpson from Peterborough area. She has written so many incredible books. My favorite being As We Have Always Done. So I think I would that I'm going to stop there or else I will literally speak all day on the topic of indigenous authors and books to read.
0: Come back. We can do this again. We could do a whole thing on books, whatever you like.
1: I would love that. That's like a dream.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, amazing. 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 Thanks so much, Christine. Chi Thank you for doing this. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? I just,
1: I want to say uh, chi to you, Roy, for inviting me to to have this conversation and find new ways to to connect during this pandemic. I mean, normally I would see you for coffee at the Sunrun Cafe, which is no longer. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a nice way to connect over over this virtual space.
0: Wonderful. Bonus question, Christine. When this pandemic is over, when it's behind us and we can gather, we can socialize, what is one thing you're looking forward to doing?
1: I am really looking forward to spending time with family and friends over a meal that's something that uh, my husband and I love to do and we normally we have at least one meal a week with members of our family and we haven't really seen anyone except for quick driveway visits at a distance so being able to see our nieces and nephews being able to see friends that live maybe even in other provinces that's what I'm looking forward to most is, is spending time with those that I love.
0: Wonderful. It's a a good plan. It's a good plan. And I'm looking forward to seeing you, Christine.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon.
1: chi Roy. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Christine, for this. And yes, come back anytime. We can talk about books. We can talk about anything. Links to Wasaya Consulting and NativeLand.ca will be on the Hibla Minute Facebook page under this episode and linked on the podcast page. Her recommendations will be there, too. And now for some music. Scarica Ricasca is a songwriter and musician based in Italy. She started to sing when she was 13 and played the guitar since she was 17. This is her song, It's Time. so it. I want to thank my guest, Christine McCray, and thanks to Skarika Rikaska for the music. It makes me so happy to know you're listening. It makes me even happier to know you've listened this far. So do me a favor and let me know what you think. Send me a message. Until next time, this is Roy Mitchell, and this has been The Hibla Minute.